Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I update my analysis of the Sherry Papini case based on her arrest in March of 2022. It's worth noting that some of the background information is based on a criminal complaint filed against Sherry Papini on March 2, 2022. Sherry Papini was born in 1982 and raised in Redding, California. At age 16, Sherry ran away from home and stayed in Southern California with friends. Presumably this was temporary. In 2000, Sherry's father called the police and said his daughter had burglarized his residence. That same year, Sherry's sister reported her to the police, saying that Sherry had kicked in the back door of her residence. In September of 2003, Sherry's father accused her of making unauthorized withdrawals from his bank account. She later returned the money to him. In December of 2003, Sherry's mother accused her of attempting to harm herself and trying to blame those injuries on her. In 2006, Sherry married a platoon sergeant named David Dreyfus. They divorced in 2008. In 2009, she married a man named Keith Papini. They would go on to have two children. Sherry and Keith lived in the Mountain Gate area of Shasta County near Redding, California. Their home was in a rural area. As early as December of 2015, Sherry started having conversations with an ex-boyfriend. They used prepaid cell phones to speak to one another. He was not identified in the criminal complaint, so I will just call him ex-boyfriend, which is how the criminal complaint referred to him. Now moving to the timeline of the alleged crime. On November 2, 2016, Sherry and her ex-boyfriend exchanged text messages in the morning. The ex-boyfriend traveled to Redding, California and picked up Sherry in a rented Dodge Challenger. They traveled together to Southern California. When Sherry's husband, Keith, came home from work, he could not find her. He noticed that she did not pick up the children from daycare, which she normally would have done. Keith used an app to locate Sherry's phone and earbuds. He found them about a mile away from his home. They looked as though they had been placed on the ground neatly. The earbuds were coiled up on top of the phone. Keith notified the police at about 5.50 p.m., 
and they started investigating. A witness had seen Sherry running on Sunrise Drive between the hours of 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. Sherry's financial accounts had not been accessed. Her purse and jewelry were accounted for. Law enforcement expended a great deal of resources trying to find Sherry, but they did not have any success. They did not know what happened to her or where she was. 22 days later, on November 24, Sherry's ex-boyfriend drove Sherry back to Northern California in a rented Mitsubishi Outlander. He dropped her off near Woodland, California, about 146 miles south of Sherry's home. At about 4.30 a.m., the California Highway Patrol responded to several 911 calls reporting that a woman was standing or running on Interstate 5. The police arrived at the scene to find Sherry. She had a chain around her waist, which was connected to one of her arms. Her other wrist and both her ankles had makeshift restraints on them. She was transported to Woodland Hospital. She had a brand on her right shoulder, rashes on her left arm and upper inner thigh, bruises on her face, pelvis, and legs. Her nose was swollen. She had burns on her left forearm and appeared to have lost quite a bit of weight. Sherry told the police that she had been kidnapped. She said the kidnappers alluded to law enforcement being involved in the crime. Therefore, Sherry was reluctant to talk to the police. Even still, she did speak to the police on several occasions. Here's what Sherry said happened. On November 2, she decided to go jogging to prepare for a local 5K race. As she approached the end of Sunrise Drive, a dark-colored SUV drove past her, then backed up. A woman in the passenger seat asked for help. As Sherry approached, she saw the woman was holding a small revolver. In a subsequent interview, she referred to it as a short revolver. The woman said something like, we don't want to hurt you. Sherry set her phone and earbuds on the ground. She did not remember getting into the vehicle, but she did remember having a pillowcase over her head. She could tell the vehicle was moving. She did not remember how long the trip was because she kept falling asleep. Seems like an odd time for a nap, but I guess some people's lives are so busy they take any opportunity they can get to sleep. The next thing she remembered was waking up in a room. Zip ties were around her wrists, and she was wearing different clothes. The kidnappers were both Hispanic women, one older and one younger. They primarily spoke Spanish and always wore masks and black leather gloves. They often played loud music outside the room that she was in. When they weren't playing loud music, they would hear every time she made a noise and run in the room and beat her. Sherry had three different stories for how her shoulder was branded. Number one, after she tried to escape, they branded her on her shoulder as punishment. Number two, the kidnappers talked about a buyer who wanted her branded, so they were doing it per the buyer's request. Number three, they branded her for making too much noise. Sherry said that she had trouble remembering what happened because she was in pain from the branding itself and from the weight of her body pressing on her recent breast implants. Over the next several weeks, the kidnappers cut her hair, burned her arm, and continued to beat her. She would try to ask them various questions like, where am I and why am I here? But they didn't answer her. At one point, the kidnappers told her they were going to sell her to a buyer who was a police officer. Sherry talked about one attack where she cut her foot on the side of a cabinet in the bathroom. Interestingly, 
Her foot did not have a cut on it or a scar. The kidnappers attempted to discourage Sherry. They told her that no one was going to find her. People think that she ran away, and the police were not looking for her. Eventually, one of the kidnappers drove her to where she was found and told her to get out of the vehicle. That was it. The kidnapping was over. Just four days after she was found, Sherry applied to the California Victim Compensation Board. She eventually received about 35 payments totaling over $30,000. She used much of it for mental health counseling over the next several years. From time to time, Sherry would offer more information to the authorities. She would add small details to her story, like describing various pieces of furniture that she saw in the place where she was kept. Sherry worked with an FBI sketch artist to create renderings of the two kidnappers. In 2018, Sherry once again contacted the FBI. She told them that during a session with her therapist, she remembered additional information about how her arm was burned. In 2020, investigators were able to identify the ex-boyfriend from the DNA found on Sherry's clothing. They interviewed him on August 10, 2020. He told investigators that Sherry had told him that her husband had been beating her and she was trying to escape him. The ex-boyfriend agreed to help her run away. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Over the course of Sherry's disappearance, she never left the ex-boyfriend's residence. While she was there, he believed that she was intentionally trying to lose weight, and he witnessed her causing injuries to herself. Sherry asked him to brand her, which he did with a wood-burning tool he purchased at Hobby Lobby. The ex-boyfriend said that he did not have sex with Sherry while she stayed with him. It's worth noting that his DNA was found on her underwear. Doesn't necessarily mean they had sex, but it is curious. Sherry eventually said that she missed her children and wanted to go home. He agreed to take her back to Northern California. Before they left, Sherry threw various items that could be connected to her into a dumpster. On the trip back, she threw a prepaid cell phone out of the car window. The ex-boyfriend dropped Sherry off and returned home. He then became increasingly concerned about all the attention the case was getting. He became worried about what that meant for him. He decided he wouldn't notify anybody, but he would tell the truth to law enforcement when and if they approached him. So all these people were wondering what happened. This guy knew what happened, and he wasn't going to say anything. I'm guessing he will not be nominated for the Helpful Citizen of the Year Award. 
Sherry was interviewed by the FBI on August 13, 2020. They told her that lying to a federal officer is a crime. She indicated that she understood. They accused her of making up the story. She denied it and continued saying that her story was true. With her husband out of the room, she admitted to investigators that she did talk to the ex-boyfriend, noting it was a mistake. On March 2, 2022, Sherry was arrested on charges of making false statements to a federal law enforcement officer and engaging in mail fraud. She is facing five years for the first charge and 20 years for the second. Now moving to my analysis. It seems fairly clear that Sherry Papini is guilty of perpetrating a hoax, although, as I mentioned, she is presumed innocent. She has not been convicted of any crime. Just a few examples of the inculpatory evidence. Her boyfriend knew about the injuries that no one else knew about. He took off work on November 1 and November 2, which was out of the ordinary. The ex-boyfriend's cousin saw Sherry at the ex-boyfriend's residence on two occasions. The prepaid cell phone records match the ex-boyfriend's story. Rental car records match his story as well. For example, the mileage for the SUV matched the round-trip distance from his residence to Northern California. A bedroom in the ex-boyfriend's residence matched one that Sherry described, and his brother had a table which matched one that Sherry described. I don't know if Sherry Papini will be convicted or not, but it doesn't look good for her. Running under the assumption that she was perpetrating a hoax, what was her motive? At first glance, this looks like a situation where Sherry wanted to have an affair. She communicated with men during her marriage to Keith, including a man from Michigan who intended to meet her the day before she was picked up by her ex-boyfriend. The plan didn't work out, but it suggests some degree of infidelity. The problem with this theory, of course, is the ex-boyfriend denies they had sex. This leads to another theory, which is that Sherry was looking for attention. In her history, we see a few different items that support this theory. A few examples. Various friends of Sherry described her making up lies about being a victim. Sherry actively contacted the authorities several times after she returned. It wasn't like she was trying to stay out of the spotlight. She voluntarily offered new information. The police spoke to a man who encountered Sherry sometime around 2000 or 2001 at a youth program meeting, and he dated her for several years. He described her as attention-hungry. He said that she fabricated stories about being a victim. The authorities contacted the director of that youth program, who remembered Sherry. The director said that she was good at creating different realities for people so that they would see what she wanted them to see. This gained her a lot of attention. Now, attention-seeking may not be the motive or the only motive. For example, Sherry did profit financially from the hoax, but I don't think money was her primary motive. It really does seem to be more about playing the victim. The hoax was consistent with her history. Now, moving to the next question, what type of personality characteristics are associated with this behavior? Not specifically speaking about this case, but rather in general. When a person plays the victim to an extreme, Sometimes it is because they are a victim narcissist. They have a set of narcissistic characteristics which facilitate this behavior. This personality type overlaps somewhat with factitious disorder imposed on self and on another. The latter disorder is also known as Munchausen syndrome by proxy, a disorder where a caregiver hurts someone in their care to attract sympathy for themselves. 
Instead of pretending to be injured or having a child who is sick, the victim narcissist creates fictitious villains who cause them harm. It's not bad enough that natural causes or something like that would hurt them. They pretend a human villain is responsible for their pain. The victim narcissist wants people to think that there's someone out there who really hates them, an active enemy who everybody can unite against. So they are not just being hurt, they are being hated. It's personal. This makes them even more of a victim. A victim narcissist typically has high levels of vulnerable narcissism. They have a sense of entitlement. They need admiration. They are self-centered, arrogant, resentful, insecure, and full of shame. When they fail to gain attention for positive reasons, they change their strategy. They make themselves into a hero by creating a villain. The personality traits of the victim narcissist often interfere with their plan. They typically have low conscientiousness and high neuroticism, so they are impulsive, irresponsible, and emotionally reactive. Typically, their plans fall apart fairly quickly because of those characteristics. The irony of the victim narcissist is that they really do suffer quite a bit, not from some external tormentor, but from their own lack of insight. Moving back to the case of Sherry Papini, what penalty should she receive if she's guilty? In most cases, I don't think prison is appropriate for nonviolent offenders. I see this as a case that should involve a long period of probation and continued mental health counseling. These behaviors are often born out of a great deal of pain and dysfunction. Prison for Sherry is not going to make society any safer, and it certainly won't help her gain any insight. If anything, it would just expose her to a new group of people she can manipulate, albeit a less receptive and less empathetic audience. Now moving to my final thoughts. Even though Sherry's plan was simplistic, it was effective because she was able to win advocates who in turn would accuse skeptics of victim blaming. This may have brought Sherry a particularly special level of joy. She had fooled people so completely that they were willing to attack those who suspected that Sherry was no victim. She used their ability to empathize and their lack of critical thinking skills against them and transformed them into unwitting accomplices. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.